What's up, good people? And welcome to Good Things with Matt Wells. I hope you're doing real good, and uh, I really appreciate you being here. And thanks for listening. Got a real special episode, uh, and I'd like to get right to it. So, I got a green tea ready. Take a little sip. And if you're ready, let's jump back to 2007 when I interviewed Phil Collins. So I interviewed Phil when Genesis were doing a reunion tour and they had a stop in Toronto. And I remember a couple of things about this interview. I've been trying to rack my brain and and really... um, remember the conversation. I remember sitting there, I remember being there, but there's only a couple things I remember. One, um, I got really great tickets to the show for my father-in-law, which scored me really primo points. (laughs) Um, Other than that, I just remember Phil being really cool. Just the type of guy that you want to hang out with. We talked about how, as the singer of Genesis, uh, you know, that was such a completely different world for him because he'd started out as the drummer. And Peter Gabriel was the singer. But in the late 70s, I think 76, Peter Gabriel leaves the band. Genesis can't find a singer. And Phil Collins eventually jumps out from behind the drum kit. And... You know, the rest is history. But that first show as the singer of Genesis happened in Ontario. So we were reminiscing about that. And and we also kind of joked about his, his sweaters in the 80s. If you look up some Phil Collins performances and videos, he had these really classic 80s sweaters that he used to wear. My point is, the interview was fun. He, he was a real cool guy just fun to be around and I walked away you know feeling like hey that was cool you know I I remember growing up in the 80s and always hearing a Phil Collins song and he was always sort of present uh, you know on on award shows and music television and the radio so it was one of the cool things of the job you get to meet people like that and then at some point not long after that interview and after that Genesis tour um, you know some reports come out that he's not doing well and you know I don't want to dive too much into the tabloidy personal things that were reported at the time. What I'd like to focus on um, is, is Phil's health. So in 2008-2009, we find out that his, his back isn't good. He's had some vertebrae issues, back surgeries. He's got neck problems, so he can't play the drums. His first love, I mean, if you know anything about Phil Collins, is that he always wanted to be a drummer from the time he was a kid. You see old pictures of him playing when he was a young fella. He just wanted to play the drums, and he got to do it. Now, after me speaking to him and him seemingly being on top of the world and touring with Genesis again and playing the drums and doing all the things that he loves, he can't even play the drums. But I guess at a certain point, things got a little bit better because he was touring again. He was playing the drums. But now in his, you know, in his 70s, Phil has a nerve damage in, in his arm, in his, uh, I believe, his left arm, and that makes it very difficult for him to hold the drumsticks. So even though he, he is performing, and he now actually has his son playing drums with him, which is pretty cool, but for Phil Collins, he can't play the drums like he used to. He can't do it for, for a profession. He can't even do it just because he loves it. He walks with a cane, and part of it is just from the abuse of his body through the years of touring. And, I mean, just think about that for a second. Think about the one thing that you love the most in this world if you weren't able to do it anymore. Like, I know Phil Collins is Phil Collins. He's famous. You know, we, we look at folks like that and think, well, they've got fame, they've got fortune, they're fine. But that's not how life works. That's not how humans work. Right? Think about that for a second. The one thing that you love in life that makes you the happiest, and one day you just can't do it anymore. And my guest knows something about that. Something about 
having their life's work, one of the things they love the most in life, uh, the thing they've built their career and their identity around just taken from them. My guest also knows something about being a musical icon from the 80s. My guest is Huey Lewis. And, you know, what can I say? What, what, do you, what do you say to introduce someone like that? The heart of rock and roll, the power of love, back to the future. The guy sang on We Are the World. Like, he has just been part of the musical landscape in a huge way, at least for my lifetime. But in 2018, uh, things weren't as great as they've always been for Huey. He started to have some serious troubles with his hearing. Huey's hearing has gotten so bad that he can't sing with a band. He can talk to you, he can do interviews, but he can't hear music the way you and I hear music. Now imagine that. A guy like Huey Lewis, that voice, those songs, he can't sing for an audience anymore. And it's really sad. But I think you'll hear in this interview, um, you know, Huey's got a beautiful take on it and a beautiful approach to life. And I can't wait for you to hear it. I have a little bit of history with Huey. I first met him in 2008 uh, when I was working at Much More Music and I was hosting a show called Where You At Baby. And the whole premise was I would travel around North America and spend a day in the life with musical icons of the past. And uh, I spent a couple days with Huey on his ranch in Missoula, Montana. And, and I tell you, he couldn't have been cooler. And we've, we've kept in touch through the years. It's, it's, the, it's a strange thing. Sometimes I, I, I have interviews with um, these musicians and, and actors and writers through the years. And for whatever reason, every now and then a friendship forms. And, uh, you know, it's not like I, I hang out with Huey or we're in touch all the time. But, you know, since 2008, a couple of times a year, we, we connect. He even played harmonica on, uh, on a recording of mine. I had a band called Lazy Bones, and we had this song called Perfect Life. And Huey played harmonica on it. You can find that. It's out there. Uh, and, and Huey's also a really great actor. You may not know this about him. I think if he wasn't uh, you know, a music star, he probably could have been a movie star. He's got that look, too, you know, that, that real traditional like cowboy kind of look. And him and I have been... You know, having some conversations over the past couple of years about trying to find a, a project to collaborate on together. But at the end of the day, I'm just a guy who loves music and am legitimately a fan of Huey Lewis, of him as a musician, of him as a person. One of the first concerts I ever saw in St. John's Newfoundland at Memorial Stadium was Huey Lewis in the news. My dad brought me. So, you know... Having Huey Lewis on my little podcast means a lot to me, and I'm, I'm so thrilled to have him here and to share his story with you. So, thanks for listening. Thanks for being here. And this is Huey Lewis on Good Things with Matt Wells. Hey, Huey, are you ready to tell me something good? What would you like to know, Matt? Just good things, Huey, just good things. Well, I got lots of good things. It's a beautiful day in Montana here, gorgeous fall day in Montana. I recognize that kitchen because I ate jambalaya there with you at that table that you cooked for me. That's it. I, just, I remember like yesterday. We, we played music together. We did play music together. Um, you know, Huey, when, I, when we did that interview back in 2008, um, you know, when I was working at Much Music, what I loved about interviews, and I'm a little bit obsessive when it comes to it, I do so much research. It's like I'm doing a thesis <laughs> on the artist. So up to that point, I knew everything there was about, about Huey Lewis. I'd watched all your interviews. I'd read every interview I could find. And now that I've, I've revisited interviewing with this podcast, I'm back to that obsessive mode. But what's interesting to me about this time, Huey, is that watching your subsequent interviews over the past eight, nine, 10 years, there's been a shift, I feel like. There's this new plateau with you in music history when I see you interviewed with people like Sway or Questlove. It's like you have this different place in music history than you did even in 2007. Do you feel that difference? 
I suppose a little bit. I mean, you know, I, I'm 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 older, Matt, <laughs> and I remember, you know, when we used to have to capture all the instruments on, in, in in four tracks. Uh, you know, uh, so it's a different mindset altogether. You know, I was telling somebody the other day. It's kind of interesting. But, you know, because I read, there's a great book, The Wrecking Crew, right? You know, The Wrecking Crew was the session guys in L.A. who made all the Beach Boys records, Mamas and Papas, Eva Destruction, Monkeys records, all those were, because in those days, you had to capture everything at once. And so they could do that because they were the best musicians. You needed the best musicians to do that. Now, that's in the 60s. In the 70s now, multi-track recording enabled you to do one thing at a time kind of and do it over and over and over again until you got it right piece by piece so now uh, it was still better to employ a session guy who could do it in one take but if you spent enough time and you weren't you could almost do it yourself and then in the 80s you still had to sing it but you only had to sing it one word at a time you know (laughs) right and then by the 90s you had pro tools and now you didn't even have to sing it in tune i mean so you know, those things, it's, it's an evolution of things. So I come from old school and I suppose that's, uh, I have that perspective on things and yeah. it's neither right nor wrong, by the way, it's neither right nor wrong. It's just different. I just feel like, and maybe it is just time and p- people are appreciating it differently or more than they were at a certain time, but it just feels like uh, almost like there's this new life for Huey Lewis and, and the news in, in popular culture. And it's, it's, it's just very cool to see because it's, it's deserving. That's, that's fine with me, Matt. Thank you for pointing it out to your audience. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. So listen, you know, when you, when you started bumming around Europe and you were, you know, every, a lot of people know the story about you, your, your, your dad sends you off, you're playing harmonica, you're playing, you're busking in Marrakesh from that time, right up until when you're in London and you're hanging with Nick Lowe and you go through everything with Clover and then onto the news, did music always sustain you in some way? Like, did you ever have another job besides music or did it always sort of give you food and, and shelter? Well, no, that, that was it. When I, when I bummed around Europe, I, I lost my, you know, the, that's the story. I lost my passport and I did a concert in Seville and we had this amazing concert. And I said, the bell went off and I said, I'm going to do this period. So I was 16, you know, now I, it, it looked like a poor decision until I was 29, <laughs> but, uh, but you know, that, that's, that's what happened. I decided that, I mean, I went back to Cornell actually, I went back to school, but engineering school was not near, near as much fun as, you know, bump, uh, busking in the streets of, you know, uh, Spain or France. And so, the bug had bit, you know, and I, I, I joined group. I went back to San Francisco, got out of, got, you know, quit school, went back to San Francisco and joined a band. And music always earns you enough to sort of live. You didn't have to get jobs. Well, yeah, I know. I, let's see. I went back. Yeah, I know. I had a little day job. We created our own jobs. We had a little landscaping company, Scott Laurie and I did that. We, okay. that we, you know, put flyers up and did some landscaping work. Um, what else did I do? And then, uh, and I got hired to uh, form a uh, by one of the our clients, who was a an heir to the uh, Johnson and Johnson uh, fortune, and it was a was a new age guy to start a, a a recycling business. So he hired me and my pals, and so we had that as a day job, and we created a a, a company called Whole Systems Recycling. We were the first people to recycle anything. This is you know nineteen seventy well, shoot seventy four. 73 very progressive huey and we did all this and and then and then uh yeah but i was always playing music at night you know cool um so you always played music but the bug really got you uh when you when your old man brought you to see uh count basie and joe williams sing right is that what got you you knew you wanted to do my dad was a jazzer and he took me to monterey monterey jazz festival and I, i'll never forget it i mean i was i'm sitting in a beautiful bright sunny day and out comes Count Basie with Joe Williams, and they're dressed in maroon suits, you know? I mean, they're dressed to the teeth with rings and jewelry and bump, and and, and effortless the way he sang, and so regal, you know, so gorgeous, just unbelievable. Just, uh, I'll never forget it. That, I said, wow, that is cool. 
And and that's you knew that's what you wanted to do, what Joe Williams was doing. Well, no, I didn't. That was the first time I thought like that's the coolest thing in the world to do. I didn't know I could do that yet. They were all these gorgeous black men dressed in maroon suits with rings on playing this unbelievable music. Yeah. You know, all right, okay, I'm in love with you, man. I remember it was their first song. Well, all right, okay, are you win. I'm in love with you. Well, all right. <laughs> okay. Forget about it. Yes. So cool, man. Very cool. Um, so, you know, Hugh, I've talked a lot of, on this podcast um, about punk and hardcore punk music because, you know, for 10 years, I, I toured as a singer in this punk hardcore inspired band. Yeah. And, as much as I liked the, a lot of the music, I was more taken by the spirit and the ethos of punk. And even to this day as an adult and as a parent and everything in my career, I took that and it's part of me. It shaped me. And you had a similar experience with punk, right? In, in the late 70s. Definitely. Def definitely. Uh, we, I was in a band called Clover and we were signed by Jake Riviera and Dave Robinson from, and they created Stiff Records together. Short, no sooner did they sign us, but punk, became the thing kind of, and they, um, uh, uh, you know, so out of our office sprung, uh, rat scabies, the damned, uh, Elvis Costello, reckless, Eric, uh, stiff records and all that stuff. So, and the thing that was so neat about the punks is that they were, you know, sort of thumbing their nose at the, at the establishment, um, and singing their own songs, their own quirky way. They weren't listening to anything anybody said. And I thought, wow, how liberating. And we'd been, of course, we'd been spending our, the last, you know, 10, 12 years trying to make ourselves attractive to record companies and doing everything they told us to do um, and, and having no success. So at least the punk thing was liberating. And I thought, you know, musically, it didn't resonate all that much with me, to be honest, but it, it gave me the confidence to start my own thing with, with a kind of a rhythm and blues influence, as opposed to a straight up rock and roll influence. And, uh, you know, my voice is a gruff, not not top 40 voice but and so uh i it gave me the confidence to do what i wanted to do so i, I admired their stance i guess is what it is i admired their 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 position and and it really helped me you know and is that where and, and i remember you saying this to me when we first met and i've heard you say it uh in subsequent interviews is that where you can't you you found or heard uh the term infiltrate and double cross yeah no, that was that was uh jake riviera's term he was he's our manager and that was that was always his term he, he was brilliant jake and what and managed costello yeah. and you know stiff records is his he was a, a ad guy as well i mean brilliant guy um i want to keep going on this topic but first back on costello for a second did you turn down the opportunity to play harmonica on costello's debut album I did uh, just on a track or two. He said, he, you know, my band backed him up on that, the, the Clover. Yeah. And they rehearsed at our, where we were living. We lived in a, in, in a big mansion, an old, an old big mansion in uh, Headley Grange where it, we lived in the, in the building where Led Zeppelin cut their record. Oh, and, yeah, and yeah. Ron Nevis recorded those huge drums right in the hallway, which was this gigantic hallway. And you could see it immediately when you were there. All you do is clap your hands. You could hear it. Yeah. You know? we, so we lived there and Elvis came down on the train and rehearsed because our equipment was set up in the living room and stuff. It's where we rehearsed. And, uh, you know, so he, they were going to make the record. They rehearsed down there. And he said to me, hey, I got a track, at least one or two, if you want to play harmonica on them. And I thought, great, but I would have to hang around all two weeks to play harp. And that was the only two weeks we had off. We worked like crazy. And so I took a vacation, went to, went to Holland, didn't play. But I, but I, by the way, uh, but I was there with, with, with all of that. And I watched Elvis and, uh, and, and we still stay in touch. In fact, when I lost my hearing, he, he wrote me the most wonderful email, uh, as did many, many people, but Elvis has stood out as being particularly heartfelt and, and neat. And he's, um, you know, brilliant. I yeah. mean, and, uh, one of the smartest guys you'll ever meet and, and, and brilliant and also very sweet. Very cool. So uh, that we were very lucky to, uh, uh, you know, just observe his whole thing. 
Well, you didn't get to play harp on Elvis's debut album, but you did play on Matt Wells's uh, Lazy Bone Bones album. So I'm just saying. Yeah, I did. <laughs> um, so I just want to go back to this uh, this punk ethos. Is it- you know the, punk, the punks were important. There's no question about it. Yeah, important. As and so as it goes into your the beginning of of the rise of of the news. You know, this infiltrate and double cross, right? Like give them what they need so you can get what you need and then get in and do what you want to do. That's the idea of infiltrate and double cross. I've, I, I remember talking to you about it and, and I feel like that's sort of how I've approached everything I've done through music, being in, in, as a host on television and now in film, you know, we can't always make the cool artistic independent things we want to do. We got to give a little to get a little. It kind of has everything to do with where the business is at the time. You know, my, I guess... Uh, as it related to me, you know, we we got signed as a new wave band, as a new kind of because we were had that English influence or something. But we weren't ever a new wave band, and we you know, we're more R and B band. And so when we got in there and had a few hits, we got our own horn section and and branched out into uh, rhythm and blues stuff and 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 original music and we we always were very diverse too you know i mean then we were we were always encouraged not to do that you need then and so our first record was all very homogeneous for the most part it was all you know uh, sort of quarter note rockers or eighth note rockers you know that kind of stuff uh but we we expanded. I mean, the thing I'm proudest of is that we did it ourselves. You know, we didn't have a producer. And in 1980, that was rare. 1978, 79, 80, 81, 82, 83. I mean, you really pretty much had to go to LA or get a producer or something. And we we got to make those decisions for ourselves. And therefore, we were a little more diverse. We did a lot of stuff that we were warned against, but it ended up being a strength. And and that's punk. All that you, you're describing is the punk spirit. And I love it. Yeah, the punk attitude. Yeah. attitude. So the road to get to sports, you know, you have six hit singles, which bring then goes into the power of love. Like this is not an overnight thing, right? As you know, I think you were probably 32 or early 30s by the time sports is even recorded or released. And and that was a long journey through everything you slogged through with Clover. And then those first two news albums, I mean, you could have been dropped at any time. They they really gave you a chance to develop, which is sort of unheard of, certainly now. Right. You could have packed it in at any time, really, and quit. How, why didn't you? Yeah, I mean, those well, those are earlier days, first of all. And so 25 wasn't that, wasn't that old back then. Right, right. <laughs> like today, you know? Yeah. But in those days, it wasn't that old for them. And 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 you're not going to pack anything in. You know, it, uh, failure doesn't break bands up as much as success does. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you're still thinking we're going to move, boom, and we're improving, and we thought we were going to make it every day, you know? And uh, that keeps you together. I mean, the hardest part is when you do finally make it, and now everybody's got to, you know got different interests and so on. And, uh, and that we were very fortunate that way as well, that the roles that we played in our band suited everybody, you know, and that doesn't always happen. Yeah, for sure. So then in the early eighties by 83 sports is starting to cook. Um, you know, you are establishing yourselves as one of the most, you know, popular bands of that era of the MTV era. It's, it's massive, but as far back as 83, you have you have a health scare, right? Vertigo happens to you during this rise. Is that right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, probably probably 83. Uh, it was a gig. First first Vertigo attack was a gig outside Boston. It was the uh, club casino in, in Hampton Beach. It's a great venue. My old man used to play there. My dad literally played there. My dad, before he played there, went and saw, you know, uh, Jimmy Lunsford band there. I mean, that's how long this place been. But, but I had a vicious vertigo attack. Couldn't got so nauseous. I couldn't stand up, threw up. They took me to the hospital, gave me a suppository and I was fine in about, you know, eight hours, but I missed the gig. And then I got that. That's a, then I lost my hearing in one ear, kind of a couple years later. Uh, I got checked out by an ENT guy who said, get used to it. It happens. I said, you got to be kidding me. He says, no. He says, I, I, he says, I said, but I'm a musician and a singer and everything. He says, hey, Brian Wilson had one ear. Jimi Hendrix had one ear. He says, 
I have one here and I'm in a barbershop quartet. I said, you're kidding me. He said, no. I said, all right, good. So I lived on one ear forever until January 27th, 2018, before a gig when I lost my left ear. And then uh, and I couldn't hear anything. So Huey, the, the ear problems, doesn't that go back to when you were a kid? Did you have ear problems way back? I had... Uh, you know, narrow eustachian tubes or, and I, and every time I, during flu seasons, when I was a kid, I would get earaches and, and that's how it would manifest itself. Not as a cough or stuff, no, earaches. And then I get these big penicillin injections and, and boom, but I had many of them. So maybe they scarred my eustachian tubes and then, you know, mm -hmm. um, 40 years of loud music isn't a good idea. And I'm, and I'm now 72 years old. So all these things combine, uh, and they call it Meniere's. Uh, the vertigo is interesting. Nobody can understand that, but I've had, I, you know, I've intense bouts of vertigo where I'm so, so nauseous. All I can do is throw up and and curl up in a ball on my bed. But I've only had maybe eight of those events over a seventy-two year period. Eight vertigo uh, events. Yeah, eight, eight, eight uh, acute ones like that. Every once in a while, I get mildly dizzy. So it's a real interesting thing. But, the, but I've never experienced vertigo, but my understanding that it's it's horrible. Oh, it's terrible. It's the worst. It's the worst. When, I mean, intense vertigo. It's it, it, There's no nausea like intense vertigo. So you're dealing with this sometimes during the, the sort of rise and the, and the heyday of, of the band. This is something you're dealing with. Yeah, well, I only had coming up through the through the eighties and all that. I only had maybe three or four vertigo uh, episodes. By then, I'd been diagnosed with Meniere's, okay. and they gave me and they gave me a little five milligram Valium to take. And what happens is when you get a, a you take a five milligram Valium. Now you take Lorzepam or whatever it is, and you curl up, go to sleep, and then in a few hours you're okay. Vertigo attacks last more. Uh, the, the description of Meniere's disease is uh, it's a, it's a syndrome defined by symptoms and the symptoms are one intense vertigo lasting more than 20 minutes and less than usually less than two hours. Um, fullness in your ear, in your ears, as if you just got out of the swimming pool and can't clear them. Uh, hearing loss in one ear and, and tinnitus uh, and if you have all those things, they call it Meniere's. And okay. they, they really don't know. I mean, I've been to House Ear Institute with Slattery and Yukich. I've been to Stanford Ear. I've been to UCSF. I've been to Mayo. I've been to Stanford, uh, uh, Harvard Medical School. Um, and the proper uh, diagnosis for what I have is Dr. Uh, uh, Dr. Slattery told me is we don't know. You mentioned January 27, 2018. This is this is when you lose the hearing in your left ear. Walk me through that 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 time that day. What that was like for you? Oh, it was horrible. It was worst. It was just horrible. Worst day. Worst day I've ever had. I got on stage. I couldn't hear anything. I thought the bass. I thought the bass had had because uh, you know I'm in ears. So I thought I thought the bass uh, amp had blown. Had blown. Is all I could hear was <laughs> in my ears. I couldn't, I couldn't find pitch. I sang blind, way out of tune. I, somehow we did it for 45 or whatever it was. I, I don't have no idea. And I marched out of there and uh, I, I thought it was the monitors or the bass or something. And then I realized, uh-oh, it's me. And then I flew to LA, went straight to the, uh, the next day I flew to LA and, and uh, I flew to San Diego where I was living and drove to LA. And stayed at my son's house, went to uh, an ENT guy that Justin Timberlake recommended. And he, he took one look at me and went, oh, man, I'm sending you to the House Ear Institute. They're going to start shooting you with steroids, which they did. They shot my inner ear with my eardrum with steroids and gave me steroid regimen and, and you know, no good. Try, then I, that became a very depressing six months. I pretty much stayed in bed, uh, tried different protocols from beta histine, sulfasalazine, any number of drugs, for, tried no drugs, 
quit drinking, quit uh, all organic, no salt, low salt, not no salt, low salt. They didn't want no, you know, I mean, pr different protocols, no caffeine, no, you know, for, for three months that didn't help. And, and Huey, is it true? Did I hear that there was a time when you would wake up in the morning um, after, you know, the hearing loss had gotten really bad, that you would wake up in the morning and, and scratch the bed sheets to help figure out what kind of day it was going to be? I actually quit scratching the sheets because I, um, my hearing is, is worse than when I used to be able to hear. I used to fluctuate between where I could scratch the seat, the sheet at arm's length on my right side. I scratch it. If I could hear that scratch, I know I'm pretty good. Well, I haven't been able to hear that for a year and a half now. I, I quit that. I have other measures of how my hearing is, and it's probably a three. It ticked up. It was, it's been a two or it was even one and a half horrible for a, a couple months, but it ticked up maybe three days ago. And I have a friend named, <laughs> named Ronnie Alpac. I had to give him a, a shout out because he, he called me. He sent me an email. He, he, he actually called me on the phone. I couldn't hear his message, but then he emailed me that he got with a healer. What the healer did, he calls upon these angels and these angels come in and beat up whatever it is that's that's troubling you. And he's, he said he found a parasite in my hearing and he boom, and he did this and the heels bump. And I said, I, so he says, let me know if your hearing gets any better. And darn it, it did. <laughs> Man, keep him on speed dial. <laughs> oh, he's on speed dial. Don't worry. So when you were singing earlier, you were singing Joe Williams. I can sing to myself. And but so, what can you hear? Can you tell that you're in key, or is it just muscle? Memory? I can be in key with myself, in tune with myself. Mm -hmm. You know, I can sing to myself, but I can't sing to anything. Right. If you, play, if you play a chord, it sounds like cacophony to me. It's right. Clang, 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 clang. Yeah. So I can't hear the tone. No pitch. It's weird. Oh, man. Wow. So, Huey, you know, I've heard you talk about what a horribly low time this was for you in in your life. So what is it that helps you kind of snap out of it and, and feel like, well, you know, I'm going to I'm going to move on and, and do the best I can. My kids actually, you know, wised me up and said, you know, pops, you got to get out of bed, man. <laughs> You know, you got to get on with your life. And uh, and so I did. You know, you, it turns out you can get used to anything and you have to be grateful. There's a lot of people that are worse off than me. You know, I'm still a lucky guy overall. I now, well, I, I can't play or sing music and, and, and worse, worse even, I can't enjoy music, you know, uh, which, is a, which is really a pain. I mean, you, could, you can play a song on my computer, one of my songs. And, and if I'm not looking at it, I can't tell you what's, I can't recognize it, so. And Huey, what about, you know, missing the the idea of being Huey Lewis, the front man of Huey Lewis in the news for these live concerts, like not having that in your life anymore, does that leave a, a void or is there an emptiness there that's hard to deal with? Uh, I've done thousands of shows, you know, or, or 1,200 shows, I mean, at least, maybe, maybe 2,000 shows, okay? So... Uh, the only thing I missed was the was the camaraderie, and and the worry that I was never going to be able to sing again. Just the worst. I I I love be, when you're sing when you're inside a song when a song you know when you're really clicking with a band the song begins to play itself play and sing itself. You know this. You just like a wave you ride and you just ride that ride that wave and it's so much fun. You know, but I I. I was I worried I was never going to experience that again, but but I don't care about doing a hundred shows a year, and I don't care about being on the bus overnight, you know, or any, any of that other stuff. And, and at a certain point, you have to just accept your lot, you know, obstacles and opportunities. When I look at my life, that's what it's been: obstacles and opportunities. And in each case, the fact that I'm even that I even became a musician was due to an obstacle that became an opportunity when my parents are divorced and my old man said take a you take a year off from school and bum around europe and that, that was an obstacle that became an opportunity you know so 
you know, I just look forward. I, I, I try not to look backwards. And, um, and I know, uh, let's face it, I'm still a very lucky guy in, in, in the scheme of things. And I got a lot of stuff that I'm doing to stay creative and, and stay, uh, stay active. You know, the Zen Buddhists say you need three things. You need something to love, something to hope for, and something to do. And, uh, and, and I try and live like that. I mean, uh, we have a new musical that we're just inches away from. We're on like the three yard line trying to get it to Broadway. Uh, what else is good? Um, I got a little radio show I'm doing on Apple Music Hits. It's been a lot of fun. I get to interview uh, Joe Montana and uh, uh, Jimmy Kimmel and, uh, you know, um, the, the Go-Go's and David Foster really had a, a fun time with that. And, um, and now I'm, I'm kind of plunging into the conservation world. I got a, uh, you know, it's always been a, been, I, I, since I lost my hearing four and a half years ago, I decided I'd uh, dedicate myself to conservation. So I've said yes to a lot of stuff there, maybe too much, but, but that's what I'm doing. That's very cool, man. Um, very cool. You know, it, it reminds me a lot of this mental toughness, mental resilience and, and the positive sort of mindset that's become an overwhelming theme with folks here on the podcast. So uh, I really dig it. Um, I want to talk to you a little bit about the legacy of Huey Lewis in the news. Um, obviously you're known as one of the most popular pop bands of the eighties, but you're not a pop band. You never were. Huey Lewis and the News are an R&B band and a good one. And I wonder, is there anything, uh, at least from your perspective, that being, being associated with the 80s and, and all the opinions that come with the 80s and maybe biases, do you think that took away from the musical legacy of the band? Yeah, no, I, I agree with you 100%. We're not an 80s band. I mean, the evidence of that is nowadays, when if, you know, if we were still touring, they would bundle us. They try to. In fact, when we were still touring, we tried to. They tried to quote unquote bundle us. They'd put us with Chicago, and we played with Chicago. And you know, it was always a great show. But we never. We we drew more people on our own sometimes than we would with Chicago. You know, or or, or almost. A, we it didn't. It wasn't synergistic, and neither was Joe Cocker, even though. Cocker was and I kind of fell in love. Really, we jammed with each other and had a ball, but it wasn't synergistic as far as the crowd was concerned. You know, either one of us, Cocker or us, could have done the same number of people in the same venue. So, uh, whereas these heavy metal shows are real easy to to kind of bundle. You know, you can get Poison and uh, 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 Def Leppard and uh, you know Motley Crue together, and bingo, you're off. You know, but We've never been bundleable because we're hard to describe, you know, and that's that's a function of 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 us having our own head, being in charge of our of our own thing from such an early time. Or we would or we would have, you know, if we were in charge, if we'd had a, a heavy record label or a manager, so we probably would have been one of those other acts. I have no tattoos, you know, because I was I'm so old. If it, if it had been three years later, I'd be tattooed head to toe if, it, if I thought it would help. You know, never too late, Huey. I don't need to look cool anymore. It's over. You you don't need tattoos, but now I feel like you got to get one. I'm going to come to Montana. We're going to find whoever the Missoula tattoo artist is, and we're going to get something. <laughs> yeah. Well, I tell people I'm, I'm not. I, I'm all, I'm pro tattoo, no question. <laughs> but I can't figure out what I want to say. <laughs> what, what can I live with for the rest of my life? We can find a nice, cool Nick Lowe uh, lyric. I'm sure we could find something. Um, so, but this idea of you uh, having success in the 80s, but in my opinion, not sounding like an 80s band, but you're, you're associated with the 80s. Is this one of the reasons you're not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame yet? I have no idea. Because I, I, you know, this, this is crazy to me. Uh, it's one of the things that, I, you know, that I'm sad about. You know, I wish... Would I like to be in the Hall of Fame? Absolutely. Do I think we deserve to be in the Hall of Fame? <laughs> I have no idea what that means. I have no idea what 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 a Hall of Fame is or any of that stuff. Uh, I, I do think that we've contributed as much as some of the people that are in there, to be honest with you. But but only that, you know. So and it's up to other people and writers and all that stuff. But it hurts me that we're not 
given enough credibility for that. But and I suppose you know we had a lot of MTV exposure, and there's a lot of reasons I could sort of point to for that. But um, but you know that doesn't help. It is what it is. So uh, the thing that that's that's that bothers me the most is that if I could still sing, yeah, you know we would uh, I, we were still improving. As crazy as that sounds, our last record really is 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 among our best work. It's it's solid. It is, yeah. And and and, uh, and we were still improving and working on it and and defining it and and distilling it. And I was becoming a better singer even at this ripe old age. Uh, you know, so I always think like we we would we would have got in there eventually, but uh, but now probably not so much. You know. Unfortunately, uh, I don't know. I don't know about that. We'll, we'll see. see. We'll see. So, Huey, is what is your um, like? What does your hopeful self tell you uh, about about ever singing with the band again? About ever singing again? Yeah. Uh, well, I don't think it's. I honestly don't think it's going to happen. I, I mean, I, there are times when my hearing got really good to number six in the first. This is four and a half years now. Two years in, in the first two years. My, my hearing would fluctuate and it would get good to where I thought I could hear. I'd call a rehearsal and it would crash before the rehearsal, almost like it was telling me, don't push this. So now two years down the road, my hearing actually stabilized, stabilized, went to six. My left ear went to six for almost eight months. And after four months, I did a little rehearsal in, in LA with John Pierce, our bass player, Bill Gibson, drummer, James Herron on guitar. And we did a real quiet one, like a unplugged, mm -hmm. not unplugged, but quiet. Yeah. And, and I could hear, I could hear pitch. As long as we did real quiet, soft song. So I thought maybe, maybe, maybe. But since that time, my hearing's crashed again. And it hasn't been anywhere near six there. And right now, it's impossible. I can't, you could, you could push one note on a piano and it's a clang for me clang i can finally i can kind of hear the note but it's out of tune with itself it's almost mm -hmm. like harmonized they call it uh resonance distortion yeah. whatever you want instead of a bass part going boom 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 i hear <laughs> and so it goes it amounts to cacophony for me i can't can't make heads or tails of it um i just want to read something to you here as we wind down um, and I'm hoping you'll recognize these lyrics. If you're not afraid to open your eyes, you may be pleasantly surprised. Things are never as bad as they seem. Just got to learn to see the forest for the trees. Yeah, good one. You, now, were those, you, were those your lyrics? I know there's a couple of writers in that song. Were those your, yeah, yeah, those, that's me. And that's um, that's song with Kenny Loggins. I wrote. Yeah. With, and it was a, it was about a kid. It's it's you know it's the, it's actually about suicide, about teen suicide. I got a letter from a kid who was, you know, really depressed and said the music it was all he had and my music and all that shit. And I wrote the song for him. Wow. I just, I was going through the catalog today and listening to some stuff, but those lyrics stuck out to me because you have been so positive through um, these health issues with your hearing. And then I know that a, you're, go ahead. Well, you know, I, uh, Tigo Torres uh, is, you know, Bon Jovi's drummer. He's a good friend of mine because we met through golf. Uh, originally because we played golf at the Dunhill Cup in 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 Scotland I got invited and it's a marvelous pro-am tournament for the European tour and at the end they have a gala band and we sit everybody sits in you know plays and and a bunch of uh European guys and 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 Tico and me and we all sat in played played and Tico and I kind of fell in love with each other not just personally but musically as well you know he's a great drummer and we we like the same sort of stuff and now i see him my i lose my hearing and now i see him a, a, after a year uh because we only see each other that year and, and he's from new jersey he's cubano and he goes yui how you doing yui i go terrible tico i gotta tell you i lost my hearing i can't do this i tell him the whole saga and he's just shaking his head he's just shaking his head and when i finish he looks up at me and he goes what are you gonna do and so that's been my mantra. What are you going to do? I love it. <laughs> um, Hugh, I got to ask you one question. Um, I remember you being here in St. John's. You played a show. My mom and sister came out to visit you. I was in Toronto. 
and I get a text from my sister and it says, uh, so you're, you had a drink with my sister, Sarah, my mom, Sharon, and my sister, Sarah texts me to say, oh my God, Huey's going to be our new stepdad. <laughs> now, Huey, now, Huey, what was going on? Was this a deal I should have brokered? Did it, was this the greatest love that never happened? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. No, your, your mom's great. We had a great meal up there. I mean, your whole family's great, actually. You know, your whole, your whole family's great. And, you, and you're a great writer, too. That's what people really don't and perceive, I think. So hopefully, you know, you're going to you're going to have your day. Well, we're, you and I are going to be working together uh, soon, my, my friend. Um, OK, brother, this is how I end uh, every podcast. There's these three questions you can answer as short or as long as you want. We ask everybody the same questions. Are you ready? Yep. Tell me about a good memory. Oh, a good memory. I'm going to say British Columbia. I got a spay rod. It's a beautiful glassy day. And, uh, you know, I'm looking up, it, 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 this is, I'm looking up at glaciers and a fall day and glassy river. And I'm skating a, 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 a skater across that glassy riff with my spay rod. And a huge steelhead comes up and attacks it. I'll never forget it. Take your breath away, beautiful. I remember uh, being on your ranch there with you and you were telling me a little bit about your love of fly fishing. And I can't remember the exact quote, but I never forget it. It was something like, I don't know if there's a God, but whatever it is, I feel closer to it right here. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's exactly mother nature. Yeah. Nature. Um, and fishing, you know, you can just walk through mother nature and it's a wonderful thing. Yeah. It's just better. But when you fish, and you have to outsmart uh, one of Mother Nature's other creatures, you connect more deeply, I think. And that's the thrill. The thrill really is, you know, there's the four stages of, of fishing. Stage one is I want to catch a fish. Two is I want to catch a lot of fish. Stage three is I want to catch a big fish. Stage four, I want to go fishing. And I'm a stage four guy. Yeah, yeah, it's the, it's the, it's the journey, right? It's the journey. Yeah, um, it's not about... Fish. Yeah, it's it is about the fish. It's not about the fishing. Not about the catching. Exactly. Uh, that's a me good metaphor for life, right? It's journey, not the destination. Um, Huey, tell me something good about your life. Uh, well, I have wonderful friends and and family. It's all the people in my life that are good. I have great people in my life, and and my two kids are just exemplary. I'm. You know, it's the best gift I could ever have. Two great kids. Cool. And finally, Huey, tell me something good we should always do for ourselves. Uh, wow, that's good. What should we always do for ourselves? Um, this is a little square, but we should read. We all need to read a lot. We don't read enough today. And uh, it does a lot of things for your reading. It, it, it helps you to to look at the world in more than two dimensions. And uh, unfortunately, television doesn't do that. So reading is important. Huey, it was so great to reconnect with you, man, and talk to you. I love you for doing this. Cool. Love, to, love, love being with you. Keep up the good work. All right, brother. All right, Matt. See ya. Oh, man. Life is a trip, isn't it? I remember vividly being a young fella in St. John's, Newfoundland, and going to this Huey Lewis and the News concert. One of the, you know, one of the first concerts I ever saw. It was at that time one of the biggest events of my life. And all these years later, to, you know, have Huey on my podcast and have this, you know, kind of cool uh, connection to him. It's life is just such a trip. And and what a story too, right? You know. The singer who literally loses his hearing and he, and he can't hear music the way we do after building his life around that very thing. Uh, a beautiful outlook and a beautiful reminder that, um, you know, a couple of reminders. One, that we got to not take the simple things in life for granted. You know, health is not simple, but I think it's one of those things that we we take for granted in the in the mad rush of life. We don't really think about our health until we don't have it or when we get sick. And also this just beautiful outlook Huey has, you know? He, he appreciates his, his family, his friends, 
and he's, you know, he's, he's staying busy. He's staying creative. He's not letting it um, get him down or define him. And I think that's really beautiful. And also, I got to say, maybe I'm biased. Huey Lewis and the News need to be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Am I wrong? We need to do something about this. Can, what can we do? Can we start some sort of petition? Some sort of hashtag? I don't know. I just think this is crazy. And maybe it is because of the, of the, the sheen of the 80s and, and the popularity they had during the MTV era. Maybe it makes people take them less seriously as musicians. But they had pop hits, but they're not a pop band. I mean, just go listen to the music. I think it is absolutely insane that Huey Lewis and the News are not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I got to think about this. I think, I, think, I think we need to do something. In the meantime, if you dig what we're doing here in the podcast, uh, please rate us, leave a comment, subscribe, share it with a friend if you think they'd like to hear this interview with Huey Lewis. All that stuff really helps us get out there into the podcast universe. Anything you can do, I appreciate it. And I also... Just simply appreciate you being here and listening. I feel all your love. I feel the power of love. See what I did there? Good Things with Matt Wells is produced by me, Matt Wells, and my friend Vince Buddha for Greater Hood Productions. Our theme song is Good Things by Walter Schreifels, as performed by his band Rival Schools. Thanks so much for being here, uh, as always. And we'll talk to you next time.